You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, good morning, guys. There's a good response. All right. Uh, My name is Rick Bowers. I am uh, on staff here at Redeemer. My family and I moved here about two years ago uh, to be part of a church planting residency here and to work to plant a Redeemer West on the west side of Round Rock. So as always, it's my joy and my pleasure to be here and to share God's word with you and to walk through uh, God's word with you. And today, uh, for those of you who've been here for a couple of weeks, you know that we've been in the book of Mark. We've been starting Mark's gospel, Mark's retelling of Jesus's life, and we've been journeying through the very early stages of that. And last week, Pastor Jordan walked us through uh, a, a particular part of Mark, and we learned a few things. We learned that Jesus actually comes from lowly places. So he comes from Nazareth, and he comes to lowly people. He comes to people who are sinners like me and sinners like you. We also learned that uh, Jesus went into the wilderness, and it was his faithfulness as he was tempted in the wilderness that actually earns our righteousness. And then we also saw last week uh, a really special moment in the early life of Jesus that he was baptized. Jesus was with John, and he was baptized. And when he was, we heard God speak for the first time in hundreds of years. And what did God say? God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And when, when God said that, he identifies Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised rescuer to the Israelite people, to God's people. And that's going to be important for us today. Today, our text moves us into a new part of Mark's gospel. We're going to be hearing Jesus speak for the very first time. So what's his message? What's he going to say? We're going to be walking through that today. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 1, 14. We'll be in verses 14 and 15 if you haven't already opened them uh, there from Boise's reading earlier. So in the early church, art was really important to them. It was used to communicate ideas and concepts in Scripture, and it was used in a way, if some of you guys may be artists or maybe you're familiar with art, you like art, you appreciate art, art can often communicate things that text can't can communicate a lot of beauty, can communicate a scene almost instantaneously that text can't communicate in the same way. The early church understood this, and art was helpful to them. So behind me, on the screen, you're going to see an image painted in 1516 by Vittore Carpaccio. I hope I got that right. The early church used art like this to display the nature of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they did this because each gospel carries with it a different weight, carries with it a different uh, essence. For Matthew, they used the image of a man. For, For John, they would use the image of an eagle. And for Luke, an ox. You guys can go look that up. Really interesting as to why they use these type of images. But for Mark, for the gospel of Mark that we're journeying through, they used a lion. And this was an image that they used very often to represent the gospel of Mark, and there's lots of reasons for this, but two of them are important for us today to remember as we're still sort of warming up through this journey of Mark. The first is the fierce pace of Mark's gospel. There's a ferocity, there's a tenacity of Mark's gospel, and maybe you've already felt it as we've walked through it. Mark's really interested in action only, 
And Mark will give us one or two words where other gospel writers may give us paragraphs and just unpack a lot of information for us. Mark is, is laser-focused on one thing. And, and here's an interesting aside. In your text today, if you have the ESV version of the Bible, there's a little word at the beginning of verse 14. It says, now. In the original language, this is just an aside, that's a connector word. Mark uses it 41 times in his gospel. It's really odd that he does that. But in the original reading, it makes the gospel one continual movement, one continual story. Mark has one thing in mind, and he's driving towards it breathlessly without stopping. Another reason for the lion finds its basis in the Old Testament. There, lions were used to represent royalty, and specifically, they were used to represent Israel's end-time king, Israel's Messiah. And this is Mark's goal, to show us that that Messiah has now arrived. And if the Messiah's come, what's he like? What's he going to say? Who's he going to be? Who is this Jesus that has now been identified as the Messiah? Today, we're going to hear the thrust of Mark's gospel summed up into one statement. If Mark were a lion, if the gospel of Mark were a lion, this would be its most powerful roar. What what the Messiah King Jesus is going to tell us today is both beautiful and it's offensive. It's going to offend us. It's both comforting and it's going to be challenging to us in many ways. And I think his roar is going to cause us either to run to him in safety and rescue and rest, or it's going to cause us to withdraw from him and run the other way in fear and in rebellion. So let me pray, and then we'll jump right into our text this morning. God, our Father, um, you are merciful and gracious, bounding in steadfast love and always slow to anger. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can know you through it. Just as Catherine prayed earlier, we thank you that we even have that privilege to have a Bible in our hands this morning. Thank you for that. Thank you that you have provided that for us. And I just ask for your spirit to come this morning to open up our eyes. Let us see you in a way that maybe we haven't seen you. Let us hear your word in a way that maybe we haven't heard your word. And ask that our hearts be softened. Our hearts be softened to you. I ask that you show us Jesus in a way that stirs our affections and that stirs our desire to be more and more like him, to follow his ways. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start in verse 14. Before we look at the king's message, let's see how Mark sets us up. So right here at the beginning, Mark tells us that after John was arrested, Jesus goes to Galilee to begin proclaiming the gospel. Remember that before this, Jesus was with John, and John was baptizing people in the Jordan River. So Mark says, okay, John's been arrested now. John had this short time for ministry to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. The Lord's arrived. John's ministry ends. Mark wants to make that really clear. And when John gets arrested, Jesus heads about 70 miles north through Samaria to Galilee. Now, Jesus is probably escaping persecution. He's probably moving away from whatever persecution got Mark thrown in jail. But I think Mark wants us to see something else here that's really important, too. I want you guys to pick up on this. Not only is Jesus moving to Galilee uh, for that reason, but there's something more important. When Jesus moves to Galilee, he's fulfilling promises that have been made in Scripture. He's fulfilling a promise specifically in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah speaks of Galilee in this chapter as being a representative of all of God's people together. 
And when Isaiah talks about Galilee in this way, he says it's a people who are in darkness, people who are in need, a people who need some sort of rescue. And Isaiah says a great light has come. He says to those who dwell in deep darkness, a great light has shone. So when Mark wants us to see Jesus in Galilee, when Mark places him here, he wants us to see Jesus fulfilling that promise. A great light has now come to people who are in darkness. And I don't know about you, but that resonates with me. It's just the idea of being in darkness. So I ask you just to consider your own life this morning or the areas in which you feel sin stirring in your own life. You feel darkness, confusion about where you are or what you're doing or purposes or any of that. Because that our text today is for us. A great light has shown. The king is here. So let's look, let's examine the king's message. In verse 15, the Messiah King says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It says, Repent and believe the gospel. There's weight in that, just right away. So who is this Jesus? Who's, who's this Jesus making these claims? This is, uh, there's a lot of authority in this claim. He's declaring a promise is fulfilled. He's making an outrageous statement that God has come near. He's saying that we should repent. That's offensive. Then he's saying that we need to believe. He's commanding us to believe. There's no apology from Jesus on this statement. There's no apology from Mark as he writes this down. It's simply the roar of Israel's promised king. Will we run to him or will we run from him? We're going to unpack his statement in four uh, four parts. The first part where he says, The time is fulfilled. Now, this is the part of the message that's probably hardest for us to understand because we're not first century Israelites. But in the core of our very being, it could be the part of the message we simply feel the most. I know we don't always love talking about our feelings, but it could be the part of the message we just simply feel the most. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, this this causes us to ask what time is fulfilled. He says, the time is fulfilled. What time is fulfilled? Fulfilled. We may not have an answer right away, but a first century Israelite, a first century Jew would have been stopped in their tracks by this statement. The phrase carries a lot of baggage and we need to unpack it. We need to see what it meant. And we've got to put ourselves in their sandals to understand it. See, they had a long history with their God. And while they knew that history, we read about it at a distance. We read about their history in the Old Testament, but they actually lived it. As children, they would have heard the stories of Abraham, Isaac, of Jacob, of the prophets, of David, of Moses. They would have heard all these stories, but unlike us, they wouldn't be stories that we need to believe. They would have been actual part of their DNA. These would have been stories that ran through their lineage. And they would have known that their God operated in relationship with them based on a series of covenant promises. And there was one promise that ran all the way through their DNA, and that promise was that rescue was coming for them. Rescue was coming. Their God that they served had been alongside them. His presence had won battles for them. Their ancestors had heard him speak, and they saw firsthand what would happen when they disobeyed his commands. Not only were they in a deep relationship with the God of the Bible, but they would have experienced crushing national devastation 
when they would sin and abandon their God. A fracturing of their nation, exile, they'd be driven out of their homeland. Eventually, factions of religion and religious people would form in Judaism. And outside power after outside power would come in and rule over them, most of the time very oppressively in oppressive ways. And they would long deeply for rescue. They would want to be rescued. They would think back to this promise, this thread that ran through their DNA, and they would think, when are we going to be rescued? And Mark wants us to see that Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled. Rescue is here. Redemption has arrived. And if you're the first century Jew, this is the pinnacle of everything you know. This is the climax of your history. This is the culmination of all the scriptures you've memorized and everything that you've hoped and prayed would be true. Now, we don't have their history. But I said we can still deeply feel this part of the king's message and Here's why I think we can, because I think in reality we want to be rescued too. I don't know if you feel it, but I I feel it. Our souls are weary. We're tired. There's different things we strive for. There's different things we push for, and we're weary, and we want rest. And often that longing to be rescued, often that longing to be saved... The problem of our condition is we always look to ourselves to do that. We always try to concoct or come up with a way that we can rescue ourselves. And we do this in a thousand different ways because we know deep inside something isn't right, but we always look to ourselves to fix it. It could be in the, in the pit of your stomach you think, man, I really, I really hate my life. And you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that out loud, especially if you're a good Christian but you carry that weight. Your job's frustrating. Your coworkers aggravate you. Maybe your job feels pointless. Maybe your boss never notices you. He never notices all the good work that you do. Maybe your spouse is frustrating you. Your kids are loud and needy. Maybe you're just bored here in suburbia, in Round Rock, Texas. What kind of excitement do you get in Round Rock, Texas? <clears throat> So you think, I'll, I'll rescue myself. I'll seek some sort of rescue. And again, we do this in all kinds of ways. We escape to fantasy through uh, video games. We escape to fantasy through Netflix binges. We uh, pop on the game so we get a little action and us out of our boredom. This darkness, this brokenness that we swim in, it's sin and it's decay. And it saturates us. And we're oppressed by it. We feel the weight of it. Maybe it's our own sin. Maybe it's somebody else's sin against us. Maybe it's our own rebellion against God. But day in and day out, we long for relief. We feel that need for relief. We crave salvation. And the message this morning that Jesus brings in this text, not only to a first century Israelite, but to us, is that the time is Fulfilled, God keeps his promise, a rescuer has come. But it may not be the rescue we expect. It wasn't the, it wasn't the rescue that the first century Jews expected. They expected a political king to come in, to set up his kingdom, and to overthrow all the other authorities and just lead the Israelites into power. But if we know Jesus, if we know the story 
That's not what happened. That's not how Jesus comes in. Jesus doesn't come in that way, and it's not the way he comes into our life either. You may have to stay in that job that's really difficult. You may have to actually pursue the heart of your spouse. You may actually have to parent and love your loud and needy kiddos. Jesus does not come to set up a political rule. He doesn't come to change the circumstances for Israel. He comes to rescue them from the inside out. He comes to rescue their hearts. He doesn't change their circumstances. He changes their hearts. And that's the same rescue he reaches out to us with, to rescue us from the inside out. That rescue comes in the Messiah, Jesus. Let's move on to the next part of his message. So he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And we could do a whole sermon series on this one. It's a really loaded phrase. And here's the interesting part for us. Kingdom of God language is all throughout Scripture. But if you're like me, when I read it, I'm kind of like, not exactly sure what that means, but I'm just going to keep going as I read through. I know it has something to do with God, but I'm just going to keep going. Jesus talks about it all the time, but most of us struggle because we don't know what it means. We're going to have plenty of time to talk about it as we go through Mark. Jesus is going to mention it a lot, and we're going to unpack it as we go through Mark. But here's what's helpful to know right now. If the God of the Bible is the creator of all things, then it would make sense to say all things are within his kingdom, right? And that's true. But it doesn't make sense that Jesus comes on the scene and says the time is fulfilled, everything around you belongs to God, repent and believe. Maybe that fits just a little bit, but not completely. When Jesus and the scriptural writers talk about the kingdom of God, what they're referring to is God's messianic kingdom. They're referring to God's kingdom ruled by God's Messiah, rescuer, king. Patrick Schreiner, a theology professor and author, he puts it this way. You can write this down if you want. It's helpful. It'll be helpful for you as we go through um, Mark and we talk about the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Super simple, right? The kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, he's saying the time of a messianic king to rule God's people is here. It's in their proximity. It's within their reach. It's come near to them. It's breaking into their world, and it's doing all of this through him as he rescues people from the inside out, like we talked about earlier. I'll share with you how I think about this. Um, I guarantee you this is going to show my nerd card a little bit, so you guys give me grace. This is a safe space, I hope. (laughs) When I think about the kingdom of God, um, I think about it in relation to movies that I like. Okay, So I like all kinds of movies. I'm going to be, again, moment of honesty, like all kinds of movies. Don't like romantic comedies. But movies that I really enjoy are sci-fi and apocalyptic type films. Sorry, just forgive me. In these films, there's usually this sort of big planet or celestial body, and it's flying through the cosmos. Um, Bruce Willis couldn't save it. Sigourney Weaver did something wrong. I don't know. And then there's another giant planet or celestial body, and you have these two objects that crash into each other. Then this crash, there's a point of impact, but this crash is not fast. It's not like a car wreck. 
There's a point of impact, there's an inbreaking, and then there's time. It takes time for the rest of this object, this planet or celestial body, to make impact into the other one. There's a breaking in because of the massiveness of what's coming. This is how I think about the kingdom of God. Maybe that's helpful for you. If you don't like my example, Jesus does give us one. So I'm going to tell you Jesus' example right here. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in a parable. He does so in the Gospels. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's really, really tiny, almost invisible. You can't see it. It's like a mustard seed that gets planted in the ground, and then it grows into something bigger. So something really small, planted, grows into something big. Something almost invisible becomes something visible until, as the prophet Habakkuk tells us, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this is the message Jesus is proclaiming. The initial collision has been made. The seed has been planted. The kingdom of God has made an inbreaking into our world as he rescues people from the inside out. So if this kingdom is arriving, if this king is here, what's it like to be ruled by God as king? There's a time in our history when God was our king, when we were in perfect relationship with him when we were in perfect relationship with each other, when we had peace and harmony inside our hearts and when we had harmony and a good relationship with the world around us, when we walked with our God and we talked with our God in the cool of the garden. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us of that reality of what it was like to have God as our king, but Genesis 3 tells us what happened to that story. tells us we didn't want God as our king. We didn't want his rule. We didn't want his authority. It didn't feel fun. It felt oppressive, and we wanted more freedom. How dare someone try to rule me, make choices for me, tell me what I should do, tell me what I shouldn't do. I can be my own king, we said. And then we pulled our gaze from God, and we set our eyes upon ourselves, and the downward trajectory into self-centeredness has not stopped. And just like it did in the garden, it still leads to death. We have these constant worries. We say, how do I look? How do I look today? Does does what I'm wearing, does what I'm driving, does the way I'm presenting myself match up with how I want people to see me? We say, how does this thing make me feel? Am I being treated fairly? In this moment, are you offending me? Are you offending me by what you're saying? What do people think of me? When you go home today, maybe you had a conversation and you go home and you're thinking, man, what did did Austin think of me when I had that conversation with him today? I hope he thought good of me. We think, am I successful? I'm going to look around. I'm going to measure myself according to everyone around me. Am I successful? Am I someone Am I heard? We're scared and we're fearful and we're weak little kings. And our frail kingdoms don't stand up to this gracious and beautiful roar of the God of the Bible. And that's why we get offended by him. Because he threatens our kingdoms. That's why we get defensive over them. 
because we feel like his judgments are too harsh and his rules are too many and he's just going to take the fun away from my life. But we do well to read Genesis 1 and 2 again. We forget that in the beginning, God and his kingdom brought goodness, it brought life, it brought perfection, it brought harmony. And Jesus, the messianic king, as he breaks the kingdom of God into our world, he's bringing the exact same thing. And then, then he tells us how to be part of this kingdom as he breaks into our world and rescues us from the inside out. Let's see what he says. In that second part of verse 15, he says, Repent and believe in the gospel. Now these two are together. We're going to take them one at a time. Repent. This is offensive, right? I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I hear that and I kind of get stirred up a little bit. Repent. Why should I repent? What do I have to be sorry for? What have I done? We don't like being told we've done something wrong. We can make our own way. We can do our own thing. And the question of our day, have I actually done anything wrong? Of course we've done wrong. And we should be sorry. God's established his moral law in the Ten Commandments. And here's a plug for Redeemer kids. If you've got a kiddo in here that's been with us for a while, they probably know, my daughter knows the commandments better than me because they've been learning them in the back. So you can ask your kiddos about the commandments. Maybe they know them better than you. The purpose of those commandments are to show us that God is holy, that we are sinful, and it's to show us how to live now that we've fallen in sin. It's actually how life works best for us. It's how life can bring us fullness and joy. Imagine that God actually cares about your joy in him. But it's the breaking of this law. It's the breaking of this moral law, the offending of the God of the universe we're guilty of. That's why the roar of King Jesus in this statement is repent. Repentance requires us to first realize that we've done something wrong. You say, I haven't broken God's law. I know a little bit of the Ten Commandments. I haven't murdered. We know how Jesus works this out, right? Have you had evil in your heart? You thought malice, anger towards anyone? Have you wished ill on someone just so your life would be better? Murderer. You say, I'm, I'm not an adulterer, though. That's one thing. I have not cheated on my spouse. What's going on in dark and secret places between you and the glowing little screen in your hand? You say, I'm not a liar. That's, that's definitely... I, I, I don't bear false witness. That's not something I do. Not even once. Not just one little white lie just to smooth things over for yourself or someone else. Just to make it a little bit easier to explain something. We're all guilty of breaking God's law. All of it. And not just one time, but many, many, many times. And there will come a moment in the future where we stand before the God of the universe and we have to give an account for breaking his law. And here's the beauty in the message of King Jesus in this text. He doesn't come saying, you're wicked and evil and I'm done with you. I'm finished. You're so frustrating, always offending God. That's not what Jesus comes saying, is it? He comes saying, repent. 
He comes saying, repent. And do you know what it means that he comes saying, repent? It means that there's hope. That there's hope for us. The king is not coming in judgment yet. He's coming and he's saying, repent and believe. Realize how you've offended God and believe and I will redeem you. So my question to you this morning, church, is have you repented? Just first of all, right off the bat, if that concept is new to you, I just ask you, have you repented? And if it's not new to you, I ask you, is your life one of continual repentance? See, on Sundays, we have a corporate confession here. We walked through it earlier. Tyler took us through it. Beautiful confession today. Confession and repentance go hand in hand. And the reason we do it here on Sundays, every Sunday, is because we want to build that rhythm into us corporately as a church, and we hope that that stirs in you to build that rhythm privately in your own lives. See, being a Christian doesn't mean you never sin. We realize that. But it does mean the time between your sin and your confession and repentance gets shorter and shorter the more and more you run to Jesus Christ. Repentance is not earthly sorrow. It's not sadness because we've been caught. It's realizing that David was right when he said in Psalm 51.4, against you, you only, God, have I sinned. It's that twist in our gut when we realize that we've done something wrong. It's that tingle in our conscience when we realize that not only have we just crushed the heart of our wife with what we just said to her, we've offended a holy and mighty God by belittling an image bearer and our sister in Christ. It's realizing that not only have we crushed the heart of our kids by how we just yelled at them, we've offended God. It's even in the small things. It's realizing that not even have we broken a tax law by how we just lied on the way we did our taxes, we've lied and broken God's law. Our sins are first against God himself. Repentance is having sorrow for offending God and others, turning from our sin and turning towards King Jesus for rescue. Being repentant Jesus says, is being a citizen of God's kingdom. It's running to his roar for safety and rescue and rest, no matter how much we have sinned, not running from it in fear. But it's not about repentance alone, Jesus says. We must also believe. These two are connected in the king's message. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. It seems to be really simple to us. We think we're at something we can finally get a hold of. We can something we can finally wrap our minds around. I can believe in God. I can believe, we say, in God. I can believe that there's a God out there, and he formed the cosmos, and he formed the planets, and maybe he formed this planet, and maybe he cares about me. Maybe he pulls the puppet strings every now and then. I can believe in God. I can believe in God who stays over there and kind of does his thing, especially on Sunday mornings, and I stay over here and I do my thing. I can believe in God, but that's not what Jesus says. Look, he says, believe in the gospel. Believe in the news that a Messiah has come to rescue. And to believe in the news, we have to trust the one who declares it. I don't know about you, but I 
feel that having come out of COVID, right? To believe in the news, we have to trust one who declares it. We hear all kinds of news. Get the shot. You'll never get sick again. Don't get the shot. It's going to kill everyone. Wear a mask and stay away from everyone and stay inside your house forever. You don't have to wear a mask. You can hug everyone you see. All the news we get, it just keeps coming at us, and it has come at us. And it's hard to know, what's the right thing to do? Who do I even believe? I don't know if I can even trust that source. Jesus doesn't say believe in God. He says believe the news from God. Believe the source. Jesus says believe God. It's not inherently difficult for us to believe in God. It's another thing altogether for us to believe God, to trust him. You see the difference? <clears throat> I can believe in the existence of my wife all day long, but do I believe my wife when she tells me that all the wonderful things she's baking for me aren't affecting the way my shirts fit? <clears throat> so there's probably nobody in this room, maybe, maybe, maybe there is. If I asked you if you believed in God, you'd say no. I think most of you probably would say yes. But if you and I were in a room alone, you were inclined to be honest with me, and I said, hey, do you believe God? You might have a different answer. Do you really believe that you were created in his image? Do you really believe God formed you with his loving hands inside your mother's womb? Do you really believe God sees you and he knows your name? Do you believe that God cares about you more than the birds of the air and he knows every hurt? He knows every fear. He knows every bit of posturing. Do you believe God has fulfilled his promise and the Messiah has come? Do you believe God when he says you're a sinner and you need that Messiah? You need that rescuer? You need that king? Do you believe God will save you by his grace alone? through your faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone? And do you believe that God can use someone like you to go right now, right here, right today, and tell other people the same good news? Because if you did believe, it would affect you from the moment you opened your eyes in the morning to the second they closed at night, and it would affect all the hours in between that you lay awake riddled with fear. King Jesus isn't telling us to believe in God. Even the demons believe and tremble, James tells us. Jesus is telling us to believe God. And that, that is what faith is. It's believing God. As we close up today, I hope that I've helped you see that the king's message says that God has kept his promise the kingdom is breaking into this world through Jesus rescuing from the inside out. And Jesus is saying that to be a citizen of his kingdom requires repentance and belief. It requires turning and it requires trusting. And that's hard for us. It was hard for Israel too. In Isaiah 30, 15, God tells his people these scary but beautiful words. I think they'll be on the screen behind me. God says through Isaiah to his people, he says, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. I ask you, let that sit with you for a minute. 
In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. What's rest feel like to you? What does quietness of your soul feel like to you? But you were unwilling. Are you unwilling this morning? Maybe not in your life as a whole, but maybe just in little parts of your life. You say, I want that that part for me. Has the king's roar caused you to run to him in safety and rescue and rest? Or to run from him in fear and in rebellion? You need to hear that you're not unfit to come to the king. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian who has wandered far away, a Christian who keeps falling down day after day after day. It doesn't matter if you're a stranger who doesn't really even know this king. You're not unfit to come to this king. For God, it's always been about returning to him and trusting him, about repentance for sin and believing his promises. It's still about that, Jesus says in his message today. The prophets before him spoke it, and we're going to see as we get through Mark, Jesus is going to grab his disciples and he's going to say, this same message, take it to the world. What's the king's message said to you this morning? The lion gospel of Mark has roared his roar, and Jesus has roared his beautiful and offensive and gracious and challenging call. The rest of Mark's gospel is going to continue to unpack it for us, and it'll show us what it means to follow that call and to follow our king. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, the words you declare through your Son are both weighty and they are hard, but they are also beautiful. They challenge us, and that's, that's a good thing, Father, because it's not good for us to be our own kings. It's not good for us to try to always make our own way. I ask this morning that you would let your words settle into those places in our hearts that we're trying to keep for ourselves. I ask that your word and your truth would settle into those places in our hearts that we haven't given up to you. I ask that you would make Jesus' call so beautiful to us and to reveal the heart of you, the heart of our King, that you love us, that you're calling us into you. You're giving us hope. You're giving us a future. I ask that you would draw us into you continually, even as we go about the rest of our day. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.